Hey guys, welcome to episode 51 of Sheer Crime. I'm Amy. And I'm Kenzie. Today, we are talking about the Catching Killers episode on Netflix dedicated to Eileen Warnos. Most true crime fanatics know this name as the first female serial killer, picking up men as a sex worker in the 90s, killing them, and dumping their bodies along the highways in central Florida. Many have seen the movies depicting her life and murderous rampage that left six, possibly seven, men dead. This is the story of how she was finally tracked down, apprehended, and convicted for her crimes. Many pieces of the puzzle had to come together in order to bring this case to a closing, including timelines, pawn shop records, fingerprints, and good old-fashioned undercover police work. When the dust settled, all it took was an old arrest warrant and the plea from the love of her life to make Eileen come clean about what she'd done. If you haven't seen this episode, you'll want to after you hear this. Sunrise. Jinx. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god, that's such a nineties. I know. Game, no one's it? gonna even get our references Nobody here. Knows. No. <laughs> no. They don't even know. Oh yes, we are back. We're back. We're back. We're recording two episodes again tonight. We are. And since we had that listener suggestion last time about a drink. Yes. I was at the liquor store and I saw these in like what, the single like you can buy the single yeah. yeah a drinks. lot of a lot of places are doing that now so you can create your own six packs with yeah. whatever you want so i think it's more of like just pick and go selection type yeah. style and i think they make a little bit more money uh, off of for them for sure they do because, because these they're were like more 250 expensive. a piece yeah <laughs> I mean, they're still expensive, but I think they make more money when they can sell them individually. I completely agree. And I saw these. They had two flavors. So they had, and these are the Mamitas, the tequila seltzer. So they had two flavors. They had tequila sunrise, and then they had spicy marg, or like spicy margarita. Oh, okay. I was a little bit like, if I get that, and it tastes like pepper, like I'm going to be <laughs> pissed. So, and I love margaritas. Like, right. that's my jam. Right. But they didn't actually have, like, flavor. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't, yeah. like, lime or, like, strawberry. So I want Tequila Sunrise because this I feel like great, though. This, this should be good. It looks refreshing. It does look refreshing. Very excited to try it. I am, too. Should we do it? Um, We should totally do it. Okay. Sounds okay. good. Ready? I'm excited. Ooh, it smells good. Ooh. That was not what I was expecting. It is not what you're expecting at all. It reminds me of just of seltzer water. Yes, but it has a unique taste. And maybe it's the tequila that's making it taste that way. I'm not sure. It's very unique. I like it. I have like a, like orange. That is definitely what it tastes like too. Something orange. Let's see. It says natural flavors on it, so I'm not sure. It doesn't give us a flavor. You know what? We'll go with it. We're we'll going to go, go with, with orange. Yeah. yeah that we're gonna that go with sounds orange. about right. I mean, Sunrise, Sunny, Sunny D, Orange. I wonder if Tequila Sunrises are made out of oranges and we're just making asses out of ourselves. 
I think they are. <laughs> I've I never think, had one. I think a tequila sunrise is like a breakfast thing. <laughs> what is like a, a mimosa, yeah. but with like tequila. tequila. That is exactly what it is. I'm almost a thousand percent sure. <laughs> Which would be why it's called a mamita instead of a mama. Fucking hell. Well, <laughs> this is... Good. No, now we know. Oh, okay. <laughs> it took well. us a while, guys, but we're here. We're enjoying it. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. It's been that kind of week where words and ideas yeah. seem so fresh. <laughs> and they're not. I'm feeling very Gen Z right now. Like it's... reinventing things in my brain yep. and feeling really excited about it. <laughs> Only to find out that it's not new. Yeah, no. This is something that's been around for a long time. We None just of it's new. Didn't know. <laughs> what did my daughter... Oh, my daughter sent me a video on TikTok that has, you know, when you're dying Easter eggs, right? And you buy, like, the Easter egg packs. Yeah. And it has the little plastic, like, decal. So she sends me a video of this person being like, oh, my God, you guys! With the plastic decal around the egg, putting it into boiling water, and it <laughs> suctions to the egg. And I'm yeah. like, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did this. I did this when I was like five. Yes. That's not new. And she's like, ugh. <laughs> like disgusted with me. Like I didn't fucking invent it. Right. Right. I'm just saying I used to do that back it's then. It's something that's not new. It's not new. Like tequila sunrises. <laughs> like tequila sunrises. But this is good. Very good. Lovely choice. I'm so glad we got to have them today. Yes, for sure. Okay. So, Eileen Warnros. Super Warnos? excited to do this one. Warnros. Warnos? Warnos. Warnos. Warnos or Warnos? Warnos. Eileen, now you're going to screw me up. I'm going to start saying it wrong. I just Warnos. had a flashback to Step Brothers. Pam? Pan. <laughs> okay. Pam? I, there's a D on the end. <laughs> There's an N and an M. Panem. Panem. Pam. <laughs> oh, we are derailing quick, oh. you guys. <laughs> yes. Okay. It's early. It's early. So this this one is a long time coming, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, for sure. I'm surprised it took us this long to do Eileen Warnos. You know what I think it is? Is that I didn't know necessarily of like a specific documentary out there about her right now. However, just recently... And I don't know if you watched it. I, I mean, I've seen it. When I say just recently, I mean, I realized it just recently. I didn't watch it just recently. Yeah. It could be long gone by now. But it was basically written by this guy who was trying to, he was a journalist, trying to get a bunch of information out of her. His name was Nick. And that's the only the only reason I remember is because in half the documentary, she's yelling at him because she doesn't want to talk about what she did. She's trying to talk Jesus to him the whole time. Yeah. And he's like, Eileen, I want to. And she's like, Nick. Nick! Like she was pissed <laughs> through the whole thing. I remember just watching that recently, but I don't know what the fuck it was. Oh, I'm sure. There's so many different things about her because I think there's just so much intrigue. For sure. And like, holy shit, this woman, I mean, had a crazy, crazy life. Crazy life. Tragic. And really sad. Yeah. Really it, sad. Overall, I mean, it's not okay what she did, but... Honestly, she was predispositioned for this type of shit. Right? I, I really agree. truly believe in that. In some of these cases, I feel like their childhood trauma just set them up. And it's like, yeah. you almost, I mean, as much as, like you said, it's terrible what they do 
you're almost like not even surprised. Like mm-hmm. you're just like, well, no kidding. Yeah. Like I, I honestly don't blame her for the way that she felt and how she acted out, even though it was wrong. Right. In some cases, they're not like that. But in this case, I, I feel like that 100%. For sure. For sure. So this one is from Catching Killers. So this one is all about like her actual like being caught and apprehended and convicted where we're not, I mean, we're going to talk about her crimes, but it's more so like, how the fuck did they actually get her? Right. Right. And that was one thing that I did not, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow. And they had it on fucking video. Well, I mean, she, I mean, think about it. She had a quite a long run yeah. of these crimes happening. So she didn't get caught right away. Like oh. it took them a long time and she's a woman. Right. Detectives are looking for men. They're not all, they're not looking for women serial killers. Like, no, it is very unheard of. And this time it was non-existent. Right. Like it just, you never saw that. So I think that's why this story is so intriguing. For sure. All right. So with that being said, I think you should lead us off. Sounds good. We are back in Florida in Marion County. Shocking. I feel like there's a lot, <laughs> a lot of Florida cases. Uh, yeah. So we're in 1990, and before we even get to the opening credits, we kind of see this montage with a detective or a police officer. We don't really know because it's just he just kind of walks us through what happened back right. then. And they had found a 50-year-old white man face down with a lot of blood around his body. And they even stated, he stated that they could smell him. From quite a ways away. I mean, it's Florida. Because he had been there for a while. It's hot. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. And we see a news reporter stating, quote, 50-year-old Troy Burris worked as a truck driver for a Florida sausage company. He had planned on quitting his job because he hated life on the road. Burris was found shot in the head. End quote. I found that really interesting to, like, state it that way. It was almost, like, insinuating that he could have possibly taken his own life. Or that... The trucking company had done something to him because well, if he was, you know, maybe someone ca- caught wind of it. I don't know. It was a really weird way of stating it. But I mean, those sausage companies can be real savage. <laughs> Just ridiculous. I'm sure. <laughs> well, and of course, at this time, remember, they didn't know. They didn't right. even know yeah, how no this idea occurred, how he was found in this. It was literally this remote, like, dirt road area. Yeah, he was found in, like, some dense vegetation. It was very, very strange yeah. and, and very weird. Now, we meet Detective Sergeant Brian Jarvis, who is one of the main detectives that is on this case. Right. And he was supervising the major crimes detectives, and he would report to Captain Binniger, who supervised the entire criminal investigations division. So we meet Captain Steve Binniger. He tells us now that he's 63 years old, retired, but at the time, back in 1990, he had about 50 people that were in his division. It was a big-time job for him, only being 32 years old. Yeah, that's sick that is that is really young for someone who's a captain and people running an entire division yeah that's nuts now someone had told him that he was probably the youngest captain in their sheriff's office since 1845 but it was never confirmed i would agree with that pretty specific of a date (laughs) to have never looked that up (laughs) but back then they probably didn't live past like 50 right so yeah right different time and 
think about how many records were not taken, you know, and are filed Did properly. Did they even have records? Exactly. Was there writing back then? Exactly. <laughs> I'm Did, kidding. Did they have pencils? Were there police officers? <laughs> Now, Steve tells us that he had been with the sheriff's department for eight and a half years and the FBI for four years. He gravitated toward jobs that had him on call constantly. No, thanks. Can't relate. No, thanks. Cannot relate literally at all. A parenthood (laughs) is about as far as I'm going to get to that, and I'm okay with that. Right. Even that some days is like, eh, I should have thought. Right. You know, I should have thought about this a little bit better before I asked for that promotion. (laughs) Now, he had been getting ready one night for dinner when he got a call that another body had been discovered in Marion County, most likely a homicide victim. Is there anything else? Well, maybe, I mean, maybe they were thinking it could have been like a suicide or like... No, it's Marion County. It's all... Everyone dies in Marion County. (laughs) We're now at September 12th of 1990, and Steve goes on to say that when he arrived on scene, he could see the body off to the side of the pavement, almost into the weeds. The victim appeared to have been shot from a few different angles. It looked like he may have tried to spin his body around to get away from the shooter. The way he was, like, laying, it looked like he tried to get away from them. Yeah, the mental image I had was a lot funnier than that. I I just imagined him, like, spinning like a top. (laughs) I don't know why. Ballerina. Yes, like, the way that they worded that, I was just like... It was interesting, but again, they kind of go by like angles of how sure. he's shot or yeah, where I'm he shot. He's maybe down and like twisted weird. Sure. Yeah. Yep. To Steve, it looked like a lot of anger went into this killing. And even 30 years later, going back to the crime scene still rushed over him, knowing that someone lost their life there. I can assume that that is just a hard thing, especially if, it's, if you still live there. You might drive by this area. Once a day, twice a day, depending on where you live. Like, that would be really hard to deal with, to know that, wow, I found someone dead here. Yeah. I mean, now we know who did it and why, but at the time, he had no idea. Right. Now, this was significant because this was similar to an earlier case they were covering because there was no vehicle in sight. So he was literally down this dirt path by himself, no vehicle. Right. Like where the hell, he wasn't walking. He was in, you know, work uniform. Like, okay, where is the vehicle at? And this is when the pattern started forming. Middle-aged men being shot multiple times near roadways without their vehicles. Right. Very odd. But now they're starting to see, wow, okay, we might have to, we might have something on our hands here. Someone killing multiple people. Yeah. This is definitely a pattern that is emerging. Yes. Now, Sergeant Brian Jarvis says that he went to the medical examiner's office to be there for the autopsy. There were seven shots to his body. It was definitely a rage-filled killing. Now, if we look back on previous cases that we've done and looked at or even watched on TV, that always points to someone that they know typically right someone that loved them someone that you know was mad at them there's rage killing is typically because of emotions because right. you, you care about that person right or something went wrong so this could have been putting them into left field they might not mm-hmm. even been on the right trajectory at this point because as we know eileen didn't know these men right she was not associated with them yeah so this could have really steered them in the wrong direction Although it also just gives us an even worse, like, reputation for being emotional women, right? Right. right. Like, we don't even know this person. 
And there's so much anger. Right. I think in my mind, because she was a woman and she was much smaller than these men, yeah. she needed to make sure they were dead. I know. That's what I thought yeah. too. Like if somebody was coming at me, like attacking me, yeah. right? Self-defense, I would probably empty out my entire right. clip on right. this one person. Because you can't afford to have them live because then right. they could still kill you because right. they're bigger than you. Yeah. You know, even if they don't have a weapon. So in my mind, I would think that, Again, they didn't know it was a woman, though. They right. were thinking it possibly was a man, a lover's triangle. Who knows what they thought, right? Yeah. It could have been a multitude of different things, but they didn't know it was a woman at that time. Yeah. Now that we do know, obviously. It all pro- makes sense. It, it does make sense. They were able to determine that his name was Charles Richard Humphreys. He had been shot with a twenty-two caliber weapon. It was the same caliber as the Troy Burris homicide. They quickly came to the realization that they could be dealing with the same killer in both of these cases. Our Sergeant Brian Jarvis continues and says that they had Troy Burris found August 4th, 1990, and now Charles Humphreys on September 12th, 1990. They followed any leads that came in, but they didn't have much at the beginning. One of their angles was to look in the newspapers at the unsolved murders in Central Florida. That's a very smart move. To see if they could connect more. Can you imagine how large that list was? I, oh, I'm sure. I didn't even know that was a thing that was in the newspaper. They, what? like, post unsolved murders I'm in sure the newspaper? I'm sure they'll, yeah, they'll post, like, what am I thinking? Like, police reports. I have not seen a newspaper, oh my god, since I was probably 10. Like, at all? I mean, in people's driveways, but I haven't actually <laughs> physically held one. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I've seen them in, like, the little, you know, newspaper things where you can grab them at the gas station and things like that. But I haven't physically bought a newspaper or read a newspaper in so long. I can't, I don't even know what they would report in there. Probably everything because of social media. Yeah. They probably have to report as much as they can to stay in business. Yeah. But we only that's just, interesting. Yeah, I, I guess the most that I ever saw was at my last job. Because we were a wealth management company. So we would have, like, oh. the Wall Street journal up every yeah. morning. It would be up there. And so I would, like, flip through it. And I was always, like, I'm still, like, baffled by how newspapers work. Like, yeah, how does, in writing, it get to me that morning when, like, the night before is when it happened? How? How did they know that? It's How did they have two different <laughs> prints ready to go at all times? And they're just, like, yeah. midnight, boom, this is the one we're doing. Yep. Blows my mind. <laughs> Blows my mind. There has to be time travel involved in that. Yep. Has to be. They know ahead of time for sure. (laughs) They did find a similar case in Citrus County with David Spears on June 1st of 1990 and in Pasco County with a John Doe on June 6th, 1990. All of the victims were middle-aged white men traveling alone in Florida. 22 caliber weapons were used in all of the cases. Okay. Come on. There has to be a link. That Something. I mean, there's too many things that are the same here. Right. So they already know, like, okay, this is serious. We need to get a lot of fucking people on this because we need to find whoever did this. Yeah. Six months before David Spears' murder, they had connected another potential victim named Richard Mallory in Volusia County. His body was found on December 13th of 1989. So now we're going back almost a full year to this murdered victim as well. All of these victims also had property stolen from them, but one key similarity was that the driver's side seat in the vehicles found 
were in the forwardmost position, meaning the person who had been driving must have been short. I was really intrigued that they noticed that. Oh, that would have been like the first thing I noticed if I were looking in the vehicle. Because I, mean, I would have fit. I mean, being a detective, I know you're trained to look at that kind of stuff, but I don't know if I would notice that. You wouldn't be short, but if you were a six foot tall man and you go to kind of position yourself into the driver's seat of these vehicles sure. and you realize it is pulled all the way forward and the guy's body that's right there is like your size. Right. That you'd be like, well, that's weird. It would never be in that position. Right. Yeah. I mean, think about, do you and Jared ever share vehicles? We do. Okay. Think about uh, what he probably thinks in his head as he tries to squeeze in after you've <laughs> driven. Because Danny's not that much taller than me. And even he makes fun of how close to the steering right. wheel I have to pull the seat. Right. No, I totally understand. Yeah. I mean, I guess. if I just feel like if it's evidence, they're yeah. not going to want to touch things. They're not going to want to, like, really get in there because they don't want to ruin anything. But I guess. If you're looking at it, though, too, through the window, you might be able to see that the seat's pulled up. You know what well, I mean? They're Depending. probably also kind of looking to see if there's anything that gives an idea of like where they could have been before that, like receipts or anything like that. Oh, so sure. maybe like checking underneath the seat, you know, or like, is there an ID that fell? Anything like that. And if yep. they're like, oh, the seat's like really all close. the way forward. <laughs> I just love that this they caught that detail. really weird. I just love that detail about it. Yeah. They did, though, find out that all of the victims were over 5 foot 10 inches tall. So they wouldn't have been able to drive with the seat pulled that far up. Their knees would have been hitting the dashboard, probably. Yeah. Brian was reminded of a case that occurred around 4th of July that could also be connected. A vehicle was found that belonged to Peter Sims, who had been listed as a missing person. His vehicle had been damaged, and again, the seat was pulled all the way forward. Even though they didn't recover his body, they were able to find witnesses that had seen two women leave his vehicle. The witness to these two women also had a description for police. They did. One of them was short and heavy set. The other one taller with shoulder length blonde hair. Now the taller blonde had a scar on her forehead and had had blood visible on her body. A composite sketch was made of both of the women, but nobody knew what their connection was to each other or to these men. It is so, it's still so crazy to me that even back then you had witnesses that were able to describe something like that. A scar on a forehead. I mean, how close was this person to them? Right. She had to be fairly close to them because... Or that's a nasty scar. Right. Because how do you see that from far away? Unless you are a Harry Potter fan, you do not notice that stuff. No. Especially then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. You'd know then. You recognize it then. Yeah. So at this point, they have five bodies and a missing person all in a span of like four months. The idea of a serial killer was becoming really overwhelming for police because they're like, shit, this is somebody who is out and about. Yeah. Like, we don't know who this is. Captain Binniger says that he reached out to dozens of law enforcement. What's interesting is that they go after this 22 caliber bullet that they're finding at all of the crime scenes and they start to kind of analyze them to see if maybe they match. Now, all of them were copper jacketed hollow points. The striations in the barrel of the gun that make the bullet spin as it's coming mm -hmm. out were all the same and all twisting to the right. Basically, these are like fingerprints 
but in the gun world, which I always think is so cool. I love that. They say that every time you have a gun, there's going to be certain things about the inside of that barrel that is different from another. Yeah. And the different type of ammo you use and how often you shoot can change the way it is. So I always find that super interesting. And they were able to link them all coming from the same gun. Right. So now they knew they were looking for a serial killer. Right. This was a, at least a single gun that was doing it. So right. somebody was responsible, whoever and, had that gun. Exactly. Now, Sergeant Jarvis also points out that a 22 caliber does come from a smaller weapon. So it's going to have very little kickback on it. And he said this could be possibly someone smaller, maybe weaker, mm-hmm. possibly a female. I'm going to pretend that he didn't say weaker, but... <laughs> smaller (laughs) but this is kind of where they started to think that they could be looking at a female serial killer it was the first time yeah and ladies we made it like we (laughs) broke through that glass ceiling (laughs) right men have been doing it forever now we're gonna do it (laughs) women can do everything this is how we yeah bring down the patriarchy (laughs) right by just bringing down middle-aged white men (laughs) Now, a few weeks later, Charles Humphrey's car was found with a receipt located under the driver's seat. Okay, so they are checking under seats. Mm-hmm. It was to a truck stop in Wildwood, Florida at Interstate 75 and County Route 44. Police went to the truck stop and asked the clerk to take a look at the photo of Charles Humphreys to see if they had recognized him coming in and could let them know, like, maybe if they had noticed anything. But the clerk did not recognize this man. However, she did recognize the composite sketches that police Mm. showed her afterwards of the two (laughs) potential females that had been seen leaving the scene. I love that. I love that they came in with the guy who owned the vehicle to say, hey, have you seen him? They're like, nope. Then they went in with the composite sketches of the women and sure as shit, she's like, actually, I totally saw them. Totally recognized them. (laughs) She stated that they'd acted, quote, kind of giddy end quote, and had kind of gotten her attention that day. So police start wondering, could they be connected in a missing persons case as well as in the death of Charles Humphreys? They still didn't have any names for the two women, but they were going to try to do whatever they could to get that information out and see if anybody else could tell them. But then another homicide occurs. On November 19th, Walter Gino Antonio is found. His vehicle License plates removed and driver's seat in the forwardmost position was also Oh my gosh, it's so crazy. Like, everything is the same. Always the same. She did not change her MO at all. No. (laughs) She did the same exact thing with every single person she killed. Yeah, I think she literally felt invisible. Like, she, not that I think she thought she was going to get away with it. I think she just literally thought nobody gave a shit. And I don't think she cared. No. I really, I don't think she cared either way. If no. she were to get caught, she I don't think it caught. mattered to her no. because her life was so shitty. Right? Like, that was exactly really the word was. I was thinking. It yeah. was so bad. And it got worse after Tyria left. You know what I mean? Like, it screwed it up even more. So I really don't think she, she cared at all. No. Uh, agreed. Captain Vinegar reminds us that Walter Antonio had been killed with the same type of weapon and ammunition, and the victim count was now at six, possibly seven, with the disappearance of Peter Sims. Still no body found. Right. The killer was making a circle, loosely, around the police. I mean, if you look on a map, 
they're basically just driving around in the same spots and kind of just dropping bodies along the way. I mean, but it was a pretty big area. It was a big area. It wasn't like a couple counties. Like, they were going, like, probably half the length of Florida. Right. Like, they were kind of really making their rounds, but eluding police. So at this point, noticing the path of destruction, police decide they're going to release the composites to the press. Get this out, not just to law enforcement, but to the public. If nothing else, for the safety of anybody traveling alone on Central Florida highways. But they'd underestimated the level of media interest that this would generate. Because it became bigger than anything Captain Binniger had ever handled up to that point in his career. I don't know how they thought that it wasn't going to be big. Are you kidding me? We're not looking for a man. We're looking for women. Because he's not in a true murder fanatic. I just, I find that so funny that he was like, oh yeah, this won't be a big thing. Uh, yeah, it will. People are gonna be like, what the hell? They're looking for women who killed all these men? Right. <laughs> what? Yeah. Of course it's gonna generate, you know, media attention and kind of like a frenzy because it never happens. Maybe because it was in Florida and homicide is so prevalent that he just was like, <laughs> I mean, maybe we'll get a hit or two on this. Could be. <laughs> and instead it just explodes. Of course, media knew that this was gonna be a big story. And we hear some reports One reporter saying, police say for the first time in criminal history, these killers may be murdering with a feminine touch. (laughs) I found that really funny. I know. I'm like, what are they like (laughs) sprinkling doilies on afterwards? Like (laughs) glitter? Like what the fuck? Feminine touch? It made me like think of like ironing. Like ironing. (laughs) Yeah. Like leaving behind a pot roast at every every crime scene. Some spray. Some fragrance. A little spray. (laughs) Leaving behind a shoe. (laughs) Right, right. Cinderella action. Yeah, high heel shoe, yeah. (laughs) Then we hear another report saying, main suspects are two young women who play damsels in distress along the roadway and then become dames of doom. (laughs) I love it. Okay, so they're not reported as monsters or psychos or, you know, scary things. Or killers. Or killers. You know. They're dames of doom and damsels of distress. Oh, because they know that that is going to get people's attention. You know what I mean? It's salacious. It's, I mean, people are intrigued. It's women. Yeah. You know? How could they be smart enough to do something like this? How are they getting away with this? How are they not in the kitchen? (laughs) Where's my sandwich? Where is my sandwich? (laughs) So we see an old press conference and Binniger, you know, back then is speaking and says, quote, We don't know how they are getting close enough to the victims without the natural tendency to be wary of strangers. She may be offering a sexual favor or asking for some sort of assistance, end quote. Rude. It's not always about sex, vinegar. But I think... I'm just kidding. If you think about it... But for real. That is probably what's happening. I mean, they're wondering, like, yeah, is she just hanging out like truck stops? Right. Because it's all, you know, off highways. Right. Sergeant Jarvis says that once everything went public, calls began pouring in. They had over 400 leads on who the possible women in the photos could be, but only four gave them good information. They all named the same people, Tyria Moore and her girlfriend, Lee. Tyria was described as short and heavy set, and then Lee had been described as being a taller blonde. So this was like concrete, yeah. like this has to be these two. They knew that the eyewitness had said the same exact thing about these two women. Right. 
The next day, they receive another lead from a detective in Port Orange. They had gotten information on their last known address, the Fairview Motel in Port Orange. So investigators check with the motel clerk. It shows them the composites of these women, and they are told that the girls stay there actually regularly, mm-hmm. and they always stay in room eight. Lee, as Eileen was known at that time, had signed in under the name Cami Marsh Green. Now, this was a name that they had not heard before, but they found that she lived in Holly Hill, Florida, which is outside of Daytona Beach. After checking it out, though, they determined that she was not involved and hadn't ever stayed at the hotel. So Lee had assumed Miss Green's identity. They begin checking pawn shops to see if anyone using these names had possibly gone in and pawned any of the items that had been stolen from the victims. Can you imagine how long that would take? Do you know how fun that would be? Oh, it would be amazing. But, like, it would be a lot of work. If she had multiple aliases and you had to find specific things and how many pawn shops there are in Florida, there's one in every other corner. Right. Just imagine where you have to go and think about how far they drove. Right. I mean... All of Central Florida. They were all over the place. Yes. Would I love to do it? Absolutely. But it would take a long time. It would take a long time. Yep. It sure would. At least they had kind of an account of what was stolen. So they at least could go in and be like, did you get any of this? Yep. And if so, who brought it in? Kind of a thing. Yep. Detectives in Daytona Beach find a pawn ticket in the name of Cammie Marsh Green. They find out that she had pawned a box of tools that they had discovered were stolen from the vehicle of David Spears, victim number two. Then a second pawn ticket for a radar detector and a 35 millimeter camera, which had both been stolen from Richard Mallory, victim number one. So this is super interesting to me, but pawn dealers at that time were supposed to get thumbprints of people pawning items. That is nuts. I did not think back then. Okay, first of all, why? I think for this purpose, for people stealing other people's stuff and pawning it for money. That's so cool. But to think that they thought of doing that way back in the 80s is crazy. My thought was that people actually did it. (laughs) Right. Like, they actually did that. That's crazy. So when they go in and they look at this information, the first ticket for the radar gun and the camera, no thumbprint was obtained. So right there, that guy, losing his job. (laughs) exactly what i thought i was like oh shit fucking fire he's done yeah that's like a cigarette sting right like no you don't pass go you do not collect 200 dollars. you find your ass unemployed and he probably thought you know what i could, they look I could, nice i could let this one slide in the fucking she's a nice gal <laughs> the police come and ask for that specific ticket that he didn't fucking get a thumbprint for oh my god and you know he did it for everyone else right everyone else <laughs> But they did obtain a thumbprint on that second ticket that had the box of tools. So they take that ticket and they send it in for analysis. But there's no hit that comes back in the system. So they decide to look at it from a manual perspective. And they're going to try to search this with the naked eye. And in 15 fucking minutes, they come back with a match. Unbelievable. What? The amount of detailed work detectives had to do back then. Unbelievable. Too much for me. Unbelievable. It's amazing. It's amazing. Truly, truly amazing. And they did match it with a woman named Lori Grody. 
again, this is another new name to add to their list. They'd never heard of a Lori Grody before. Right. When they checked the name, a person using that name had been arrested in Florida for possession of a weapon and had skipped out on bond. This means they had an arrest warrant and an actual booking photo. It's always the arrest warrant. I just, there's so many layers. And then they finally find out who she is. And it's just like, it just blows my mind. I just love this type of shit. I love this type of investigation, this detective work. It's amazing. I know. When they ran her background check, they found that her actual name was Eileen Warnos. She was originally from Michigan, about five foot four. This would fit the profile for someone that would need the driver's seat pulled up all the way forward. And they got the help from the Michigan State Police Force, who did a comprehensive background check on Eileen. It showed that she had a horrible family life. She didn't have a mother or father figure. Her father had been a career criminal. By the age of 13, she started prostituting herself for cigarettes, even living in an old car in the woods for a while. Okay, that completely broke my heart. Oh, when you hear about her, they don't talk about it. They don't go as much into detail as they could. Poor girl was raped, tortured, prostituted from like the youngest age ever. 13. For cigarettes, you guys. And back then, cigarettes were like a dollar. I'm not going to lie. I've at times wanted to prostitute myself (laughs) for a cigarette. But did I have the guts to do it? No. It's just so young and naive and impressionable. Very. When this type of shit happens, it's all she knows. And this is what she thinks is how life is and how life works. It ingrains on her brain. Again, you don't want to like use this type of thing to say, okay, well, this is why it happened and we should forgive her for it. No. No, but But, I think it makes it more understandable of why things went the way they went. We can understand why things went the way they did. It wasn't just like senseless. Right. Exactly. One time, Eileen had purchased a gun and planned on robbing a convenience store, but got arrested. She wasn't smart. No, she wasn't. No. Oh, and again, I don't know how well her education actually was. Think about that. I mean, if you hear her speak, you'd know that it wasn't that great. By this point, detectives knew they were looking for Eileen Warnos and Tyria Moore. They thought they were going after two cold-blooded murderers and were concerned that someone else might die before they find them. Because again, now what? We're up to seven, eight, nine victims? Yeah. Over not even that long of a time span. It's only been like a year or a year and a half, you know? It's crazy. Steve Binniger tells us that with all the information they had, they found out that these women always seemed to gravitate back to the Daytona Beach area. So there must have been some clues that said that they go back there for maybe their living situation. Who knows? They always go back to Daytona Beach. I mean, it's Daytona Beach. But I will also say that that was probably one of the worst places in Florida that I've ever gone. Really? That was where we went for our baby moon. (gasps) Oh, that's right. It was fucking cold. The whole time. Oh, my God. That's right. And windy. And, like, we never even got into the ocean because it was so cold and there were so many jellyfish. Yeah. No. Not a fan. However, we were there at the very beginning of bike week. So I can understand why that would be a fun place to be. Oh, for sure. Very busy. Especially for Eileen. Yep. Very touristy. She is a biker. And. hardcore chick. You can hide. Right. There's a a lot lot of people. people. And they all look sketchy. Mm Mm-hmm. They all look the same. They're all wearing biker uniforms, and she kind of looked that way, too. They all look rough, and yes. this was a good spot for her to hide. 
Now, at this point, when they found out that she was gravitating towards Daytona Beach, they got Mike Joyner on the case, and he was a really good undercover detective. I would love to just talk with him. I know. He's cool. I found out he passed away. Oh, no. I know. At a pretty young age, like only a couple of years ago, I think. I might go into it later on, but I did look into him, and he passed away. Sad. I mean, I'm not a hundred. I'm not surprised. He didn't look like he took care of himself very well. No, definitely yeah. didn't really didn't really take care of his health too much. But still sad because he was he was still pretty young he was, when he when he passed away. Cool. We meet Lieutenant Mike Joyner, and he says that he has worked undercover in contract killings, drug deals, extortion cases, homicide cases, like just a fucking badass, like a Super real life badass. badass. Yeah, how fucking cool would that be? Scary, scary. Oh my god, very scary. Yeah. But super fucking cool to nail people. Like, just fucking... Oh, my God. But then, I would never want to play poker against that I'd guy. I'd be so nervous, though. Think about if these people ever got out of prison. <laughs> or, like, their associates, like, right. knew that you ratted people out. Right, yeah. right. He did do it to try and get the worst people off of the streets. He really was about protecting the community. And, like, he did it for the greater good of people. Yeah. And I think you have to. If you want to get into that line of work, you have to be doing it for... Not just the paycheck. Like, you have to be doing it for another reason because it's scary. It's a, it's a tough job and it's a scary life to live. And you have to live under aliases forever. No. You Mike, know, always in the shadows. Yeah. Mike Joyner, big dick energy. For sure. Like, biggest, <laughs> biggest dick energy. <laughs> yes. Now, this was Mike's first experience with a case of this magnitude with women as the suspects. Well, yeah. Yeah. And Steve had asked him what they should do to catch these women. Mike replied with, they're barflies. Take us to Daytona and let us start working the bars. We will run into them eventually. I mean, can I be on that job? <laughs> like, take me to Daytona and just let me work the bars. Yes, let me just bar hop eventually, every day all day. we'll run into them. <laughs> Again, as we kind of just stated, Daytona was already busy with all of the bikers. So the task to find them was going to be a little bit tougher. Because again, now you have to sift through all of these visitors. Yeah. Mike remembers that he was there for about 10 days and he went into more bars than he could count. He said he was going to try to go into every single bar in Daytona Beach. Could you imagine? No. <laughs> That's a lot. That's, That's a, a lot, lot of bars. Now, they found a bar in Port Orange that they decided to go into. He went up to the bar to grab a beer and then he looked over and he saw Eileen. How? What the fuck are the chances of that? I mean, he Honestly, knew that's where they'd be. But all the fucking bars that he happens to walk I in there know. when she's there. When she's there. It's nuts. It just is so crazy to me. He remembers that she looked just like the picture, but the scar was what really caught his attention. She was alone. Tyree was not with her. He had his partner go tell the captain that he found her and that he was staying. Steve thought it was a miracle moment when he got the call that they had finally located her. Right. He thought it was unbelievable that they were able to find her. He was completely on cloud nine. Like I said, the chances. Unbelievable. Are, the percentage of them being able to actually find her in a bar, like be there at the same time as her, is probably so astronomically low. Yeah. And they happened to go into the goddamn bar she was in. And it was a small, small hole in the wall bar. Yeah. Like, it kind of looked like it was in the middle of nowhere, to be honest. It didn't I mean, even look like it was around other things. Yeah, it's right outside of, like, Daytona. Like, crazy. Ugh. Yeah. Mike goes on to say that he slowly made his way over to the side of the bar she was at and asked if he could buy her a drink. 
He made it a point to show her that he had a wad of money in his pockets because money makes people talk. Absolutely. They were hoping they could gain her trust so she would say something that would implicate herself in the homicides. That's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. I mean, hopeful thinking. For sure. <laughs> like, what, she's oh, just going to start talking to you? A random stranger is not going to tell you about people she killed. Like, no. it's, it's just not going to happen. No. But hopeful thinking. Maybe get her drunk. Get her, <laughs> I don't know. And maybe that was their point. Maybe yeah. they wanted to get her drunk enough where she would maybe be a little bit incoherent or forget what she was saying or kind of let her mouth just run. Yeah. And say stuff that she would regret. And who knows, maybe he was sitting back long enough that he heard her maybe being kind of loud and and braggy, you know, sure. at the other end of the bar. Because I think they were playing, she, he caught her, like, playing pool. Yeah. I mean, like, who knows what she was like. Maybe he immediately made, like, that snap judgment about her. Or he saw her and was like, she is not as smart as we were thinking. Yeah. Like, there's no way that this woman is some, like, evil genius. Right. Or she's, like, so far evil genius that she has gone to the other side. <laughs> we're like, right. it just doesn't even make sense. <laughs> right, right. He said that she was friendly at first until she got booze in her, and then she changed. At one point when they were playing pool, she hit him in the back with her pool stick. And she hit him so hard that he actually fell to his knees. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> what? what the hell? And it was out of nowhere. He I said it was fucking knocked her out. My nothing God. provoked her to do this. No, they were just playing pool. It was out of out of the blue. Yeah. Mike gets back up and starts yelling at her, like, "Why the hell did you hit me?" She reached up and hugged him, telling him that she didn't know why she did it. It just comes over her sometimes. Okay, I mean, that's fucking scary. We all have those like mental thoughts. <laughs> it's about not acting on them. <laughs> If I had a nickel for every time I violently attacked somebody in my brain. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Can you just imagine if humans just did that? Like, a violent outburst just came into their head and they actually acted on it every single time. It happened. We'd all be dead. We'd all be dead. We, we'd all be dead. There would be no such thing as prisons because everybody would be in prison. It would just be the place that you are. Yes. It's just our world. It would be a prison. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> now, this made Mike think, if she was able to kill seven people, what's going to stop her from killing eight? Mm-hmm. She doesn't know him. Yeah. Why wouldn't she kill him? Right. You know, and now she knows he has a lot of money. Right. So that could be a motivating factor for her. Yeah. He decides not to make this as big of an issue as maybe he would have. Right. He didn't really want to provoke her anymore. Right. He wanted to, like, keep her even keel. And remember, he still wanted to become friends with her. Right. And make her trust him. Right. Eileen had told him that she wanted to go to the Last Resort, which is a small biker bar in Daytona Beach. Mike made sure to have a surveillance team right in front of the bar. He told Eileen that he had to get gas, but he would meet her there. Obviously, he was meeting with his team to get wired up. Right. So he needed to get wired up. Now they could hopefully get some information from her or hear what she has to say. Even like maybe figure out her demeanor, right? Because now they actually are... Are close to her. Now they have someone on the inside talking to her, figuring something out. Right. Now, at this point, Captain Bindiger is posted down the street listening in on this mic. And he says that he just felt sort of helpless. I mean, he's over there, like, listening, but 
that's it. Like he can't, he doesn't have eyes on her. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, this was pretty risky. I mean, she could be carrying that gun. Right. And who's to say that she's not just going to unload it in public. Right. So far she hasn't done that, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen. Right. Might provoke her. Back at the bar, Mike Joyner and her are talking and they start drinking again. And she mentions not having a place to live and that she has no money. At this point, he just keeps flashing that wad of money like every time. (laughs) And he's buying stuff the whole time to try to hook her in. I mean, you know, why would she walk away from that? Well, I think he wanted her to like like him and stay by him right yep right stay with stay him friends with him because oh well he can pay for all my drinks now i don't have the money to pay for my drinks i'll just let him do it yeah i mean genius <laughs> i know why don't we all do that we all went to the bars looking for the cute one to buy us drinks we should have been looking for the guy at the bar that was by himself right maybe a little overweight <laughs> big old beard like looked like a biker yeah want of money in his pocket exactly eileen tells him quote yeah I definitely like to stay in contact with you and all. You're my type, end quote. He says that he did not feel like she was flirting, though. He felt that she was baiting her next victim. Terrifying. Yeah. But then she goes on to say, quote, It's just that, you know, I'm so fucked up and so hurt. And he asks her. Now, this is all recorded, so we're all, like, listening to this. Yep. He asks her why she feels that way. And she says, quote, I lost somebody I was in love with for five years, end quote. And he says, well, what happened? Did they run off or something? And she's like, yeah. So she begins telling him about Tyria and that she was just devastated. And Mike could tell she was devastated. She had suggested to Mike that they go out that night, told him that she knew some places and that he was to bring all of his money with and that they were going to have a good time. That's such a weird thing to say. Bring all of your money okay (laughs) i mean i think it was a completely um tacky way of her just being like you're gonna be paying it's just so weird i won't have any so i'm not (laughs) i'm inviting you out but this is not like a go dutch situation right you're paying for us (laughs) mike knew that this was it so he decides he's gonna go to the bathroom he told his team outside like look this is like the end of my day yeah like we need to get her now because I don't think I'm going to be coming back if I leave right. with her. He tells his team to be ready outside. Captain Vinegar says that they didn't have enough on the homicide for an arrest, though. Because, I mean, all they had was her pawning some of the items. Right. They don't have a gun. They don't have anything. They need a little more evidence before they can actually arrest her for that. Right. But they have that outstanding mm-hmm. warrant. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing videotape of the entire thing go down of her getting arrested. And it's amazing i love it i love the acting oh my god all of it (laughs) mike joiner literally spot on spot on he is swearing he is acting he is fighting police oh yeah like (laughs) and that's how if i was gonna be undercover fucking right that's how i would be i would be pushing limits yes like you're giving me an inch i'm taking a mile well and you need to you need to make it believable especially if you're trying to capture someone you know what i mean you don't want them to think that you're in on it so you need to make it as believable as possible and i loved every second of it oh me too (laughs) and he doesn't want her to know that he's an undercover cop now the whole time on video eileen is very calm confused Mm kind of looking around a little bit like what the fuck is going on mike Again, making a total scene, getting combative (laughs) with officers, 
It's gold. Yeah. It's gold. Yeah, I love it. I mean, if he wasn't drunk, I'd have thought he was watching that. Right. And I would have thought they were after him. Yep. It was awesome. Joyner says that the two of them were put into the back of the patrol car after that point. So at this point, we can't see it. And they leave him alone with her to see if he can get any more information. But there's no confession. There's no mention of homicides. There's no gun. They don't have enough evidence to convict her for that. And in the back of the car... He's kind of pissed. He's acting like, what the fuck is going on? And then she's like, well, what the fuck is going on? And he's like, well, I don't fucking know. Like, they're kind of like bickering like they know each other. Yeah. Yep. And they're kind of like both pointing the blame a little bit. Right. As to like, you're the reason this is happening. Yeah. But he played it off really well. I mean, she seemed a little sketched out. Right. When they were sitting back there, you could tell the question. She's like, well, the fuck are you, you know? Yeah. Is this you? Are you a cop? Like, blah, blah, blah. She kind of was getting like combative but then yep. he went right back at her and started fucking swearing at her yeah. like what are you fucking talking about get back in the fucking kitchen <laughs> sergeant jarvis tells us that back at the sheriff's office they heard the news that she was arrested and they knew that it was going to be difficult to get a confession under these circumstances now mike had been able to find out how strongly eileen felt about tyria and that she would do anything for her so they thought hmm Maybe they use that as a way to kind of get some information. For sure. So the lead that had given them some information on Tyria was able to provide a phone number for her. They locate her and they bring her back to Florida. Captain Vinegar knows that if Tyria decided not to cooperate, though, they would be back at square one. So they really needed to get her on board. For sure. We actually get to see an interview with Tyria, and detectives ask, quote, first of all, how do you know Eileen, end quote. Tyria states, quote, I met her at a gay bar in South Daytona in June of 1986. We lived together for four years and started out as lovers, and later we were just like sisters more, end quote. Which is a very, <laughs> I don't like that statement. Me neither. It's very strange. Yeah, it's super creepy. <laughs> your lovers, but then your sisters. Ah. I know it's like saying like, yeah, like me and my ex-boyfriend, like we were lovers at one point, but then we were more like siblings. No. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, still gross. Yeah, it's it's weird. Now, Steve Binniger thinks she was really nervous during her interview. Like, obviously, who wouldn't be knowing what she knew? She knew. She knew what she had done. Right. And now she's worried for her own damn self. Mm-hmm. Like, am I going to get implicated too? Am I going to serve jail time? Like, what the hell? Of course mm-hmm. she's nervous. And they were relieved that she was willing to cooperate with them. Now, back to the interview with Tyria, she goes on to state, quote, she came home one morning with a two-door Cadillac in December of 89. We were sitting on the living room floor, and she openly confessed that she had shot and killed a man that day, end quote. Now, going back to their timeline, this lines up perfectly with the homicide of Richard Mallory in December of 1989. Tyria goes on to tell us that, quote, at first, I didn't believe her because she lies about a lot of things, but I saw it about a week later on the news, end quote. Holy shit. I know. You think she's lying and then a week later you realize that she fucking wasn't? Yeah. Terrified. I wouldn't want to fucking be around that person anymore. Like, what if they do that to me? Right. (laughs) Like, you don't know her motive. You know what I mean? Oh, scary. Except I think Tyria, like, treated her so well that I don't think Eileen ever would have touched. Like, she wouldn't have harmed a hair on her head. She wouldn't, but just the unknown of not knowing if she would. Or just knowing that this person is capable of that. Yes. 
she could have a psychotic episode and accidentally kill her in a rage. You know what I mean? I'm sure Tyria had seen her mad or seen her in those fits of rages from alcohol or drugs or whatever she was doing. That alone would be scary. Right. Now, Sergeant Brian Jarvis says that it felt like a big exhale for detectives. All of the pieces were starting to fit together. There was no more doubt about whether or not they had the correct person in custody. They were aware that Tyria never came forward with this information, even though she should have. Because, again, (laughs) that is against the law. Right. And they could have potentially pressed charges on her. But they did ultimately decide they wanted to use her as a witness in their case to ensure they would get the conviction they needed. Yeah. They didn't think that Tyria really had anything to do with the murders themselves. Yeah. They she thought was it, just knowing of them. Yeah. She knew about them. She should have came to police. But now, in order to make sure they can convict Eileen, they need her testimony. Right. Lieutenant Joyner says that Tyria was scared to death that she was going to spend the rest of her life in prison. She told detectives that she would help get a confession from Eileen. Damn. An actual confession. Sergeant Jarvis tells us that they got her set up in a motel room in Daytona and had her contact Eileen. Since Eileen was still in jail at this point, she wrote her a letter and gave her information to contact her when she could. Adding in, call me, I'm scared. To the letter. Perfect. Lieutenant Joyner needed to remind Tyria, show her how scared you are and make Eileen believe it. Because, again, he said that Eileen was going to do anything for Tyria. Yeah. Anything Tyria asked, Eileen was going to do for her. Tyria was sitting in her motel room when the phone rings. Everyone became alert. Mm -hmm. As they assumed, it was Eileen. This is the conversation we hear between Eileen and Tyria. Tyria, quote, what the hell's going on? They've called. They've been up to my parents again. They've got my sister now asking her questions. I don't know what's going on, end quote. Eileen, quote, huh? Why are they asking your sister questions, end quote. That would have been my first thing, like, wait a minute. <laughs> I would have been like, Tyria, you're selling it too much. Yeah, yeah, you're selling yeah. it too much. Yeah. Bring it back here. Tyria states, quote, I don't know. Lee, I think they're coming after me. I know they are. End quote. Eileen, quote, no, they're not. You're innocent. I'm not going to let you go to jail. You hear me? End quote. Tyria, quote, you evidently don't love me anymore. You don't trust me or anything. You're going to let me get in trouble for something I didn't do. End quote. And Eileen, quote, I said I'm not. End quote. Mike Joyner remembers Tyria being really emotional during the call. And it was all real. Real tears. Real, like, anxiety. Like, you could feel her anxiety. I think because it's scary. She knew she was lying to Eileen. She knew she was, like, you know, going against her at this point. And I think she was sad about all of this even happening. And being in this position. You know what I mean? Yeah, they were, I mean, they were in love. For sure. You know? Tyria then asks Eileen, quote, why the hell did you do this? End quote. Eileen then says, quote, listen, Ty, I'm probably never going to see you again. You know that? I love you. If I have to confess everything just to keep you from getting in trouble, I will. So don't worry, okay? End quote. Tyria told her to, quote, get it over with right now. End quote. Eileen ends the call with, quote, all right, all right. I love you. End quote. And Tyria states, quote, okay, bye, end quote. (laughs) 
Eileen doesn't even get an I love you from her. <laughs> Never once. Why is that such like a, oh. It was, it kind of made me sad. It made me sad because it made Eileen me sad. was genuine. And in that call, in the beginning of the call, she's got kind of like attitude behind her voice. But towards the end of the call, Eileen is very like, I mean, she sounds tired. Mm-hmm. She sounds like she's trying to calm down Tyria. Tyria's scared. Mm-hmm. And she just wants her to know, like, trust me, I'm not going to let you go down for any of this. It kind of, like, pulled up it my heartstrings. It pulls strings. up your heartstrings a little bit. She kept saying, I love you, to Tyria. And Tyria never, ever said it back. She never she said just, it back. She was accusatory, which she should be. Like, I'm, like, conflicted because Eileen did horrible things. She killed innocent men for no reason. Yeah. You know, just for Tyria, for money, for possessional things and it was usually for a minimal amount of money it wasn't even for something that was like big sad i i feel so strongly that eileen did this more so out of like ptsd because that again they don't talk about it in yeah but we know that she had been raped multiple times growing up and during prostitution and didn't like it and in this situation she would kind of lure these guys and then get scared. Yeah. And then she would act out so before almost, they could hurt her. Almost like revenge a yep. little bit for the men who had hurt her in her past. Yep. So it's just, ugh, it's hard. Still, it's, it's hard. It's, yeah, it's it's very sad. Captain Binniger says that watching this and listening to it, you could tell Eileen really cared about Tyria. And she was probably the most stable relationship that she had ever had in her life. For sure. Within an hour of getting off the phone with Ty... Eileen reached out to corrections officers at the jail and was ready to talk. We see video footage dated January 16 of 1991. Quote, I'm the one that did the killing. I know that I don't want my girlfriend involved. She did not do anything. And I'm trying to make this clear. That's why I'm confessing. But what I did, I don't understand why I did it. I just don't. I should never have done it. And she's sobbing. See, most of the times I was drunk as hell and I was a professional hooker. Captain Binniger says that she'd had a really tough life. But again, there's a lot of people out there with tough lives and they don't go on a killing spree. So, I mean, I get it. Totally get it. She goes on, quote, they were bad because they were going to hurt me. This person was either going to physically beat me up, rape me or kill me. And I don't know which one. And I just turned around and did my fair play before I could get hurt. End quote. Captain Binniger says no one, including her, probably knows exactly why she did it. While some concentrate on the why, his job had always been to concentrate on the who. Who killed these men? They never found evidence indicating that Tyria Moore wasn't responsible for any of the murders. But she was critical in making the case against Eileen. And some believe that the police extorted her and her love in order to get Eileen to confess. I'm sure she, I'm sure they did. They had to do what they had to do to make sure Eileen would go to prison for either the rest of her life or get the death penalty. Right. We hear a reporter state, Today, the jury in the case recommended that Eileen Warnos get the electric chair. Warnos is a prostitute. She was convicted of killing a man who picked her up for sex. Sergeant Jarvis remembers that at times it was like a switch had gone off with Eileen and she'd go into this mode where she was that aggressor, that predator, and that she was out for the kill. Like she was like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation. We get some on-screen text that says Eileen Warnos received six death sentences in total. In 2001, after years of appeals, 
she asked to die. We hear Eileen, quote, no sense in keeping me alive because I'd absolutely kill again. I've got too much anger, too much hatred in me, end quote. On-screen text says that she was executed by lethal injection on October 9th of 2002. Ending this documentary is Sergeant Jarvis telling us that 30 years later, people are still fascinated by this story that could just as well have been fiction as wild as it was. And then we see like a montage of pictures of her at that bar, the last mm-hmm. resort in Florida, along with like the notes of all of her victims, you know, included on there and stuff. And um, that's kind of, you know, the, the end is always just kind of a montage of everybody's kind of thoughts. And I just kind of, I just kind of breezed right past all that. Yeah. <laughs> because you guys got to go watch it yourself. Yes. Well, and honestly, that bar is still up and running. Yeah. Like, you can still go to the bar. Like, a lot of people go there specifically because it was the bar where Eileen Warnos was when she got apprehended by police. Not going to lie. I wished we'd have known about I this know. a year ago <laughs> when I was there in fucking Daytona. Because I know. I w- that would have been something that I would have loved to have done. Hands down. Hands Let me down. go look at all the biker bars. Let me check out the last resort. <laughs> exactly. And that's how the episode on Eileen Warnos of Catching Killers ends. What'd you think? I I loved it. I mean, yeah. I, I loved I loved how the episode was put together. I'm so conflicted. I mean, I I feel terrible for her victims. I feel terrible for her. Yeah. It's just a tragic, tragic story. All her whole life was tragic. Even up until the end. I mean, she was begging to die. Like yeah. That is terribly sad if you think about that, you know? Like, she didn't even want to get appeals because she knew how fucked up she was inside. And nothing could fix it. No. And, I mean, she was very honest about that. She's like, I I can't be here anymore Mm -hmm. as the person I am. I'm just too fucked up, you know? And it's just, overall, it's just very, very sad. I don't know how I feel. I feel conflicted. Yeah. I'm still super sad about Mike Joyner. I know. I know. I can't remember. I can't believe I didn't write that down. I I, I would have definitely. You wrote, must have just looked it up while you were. I watching. can't remember why I looked up his name. I looked up his name for some reason, and I saw that he had recently passed away, like within the past couple of years or something, or not too long ago. It wasn't that long ago, so very sad. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for listening to another episode of Sheer Crime. Next time we will be going back to our Hulu series, The Killer Speaks, and covering the case on Jean Meredith. When two women are found brutally murdered within weeks of each other in a small town in Montana, Jean quickly becomes a person of interest. Stay tuned for this one. You won't want to miss it. If you would like to follow us on social media, you can find us in our Facebook group, Sheer Crime Podcast Discussion Group. We are on Instagram at Sheer underscore crime underscore podcast, Twitter at Sheer Crime Pod, TikTok at Sheer Crime Podcast, and you can send us a personal email or an episode request to requests at sheercrimepodcast.com. Stay safe, stay sane, and remember, never run with scissors. Bye, guys. Bye.